The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the big week ahead for your money, more inflation data, the kickoff to earnings season, of course, and now new geopolitical risks to consider. Our investment committee on the case. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss. Let's check the markets where you know by now we're well off the lows. Uh, take a look at the Dow, uh, about to go positive, actually it looks as though. Uh, S&P following that story as well. NASDAQ still negative, and the Russell, uh, in fact, is positive today. Um, so, Joe, we, we turn to you. Um, so we got a big week. Um, we have these new risks uh, that are obviously front and center and for us to consider. So how do you see things now? I see things as the safe haven trade is, is clearly in place. I still look at the environment. I see a disinflationary trend. I see slower economic growth. And the horrific events of the weekend do nothing uh, to reverse those two conditions. That's what I see in front of us. I still believe that bonds over equities is where you'll see more of the value opportunity. But within the equity market, you still have the areas where there are strong tailwinds. And we know what that is. That's the Magnificent Seven. You could make the case that clearly energy is making a little bit of a comeback there in that regard. And then the defense stocks. Yeah, the most, defense most immediate. I'm glad you brought it up. And I, I Forgive me for cutting you off, but I, I want to go there. You bought the ITA. I did. So we had uh, maintained position in the quality momentum strategy to both Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman uh, over the last several years. Early in 2023, we exited those positions. There's nothing that could be affected within that strategy until the end of the month. But personally, I felt given the sell-off that we've witnessed in the defense stocks year to date and then the unfortunate circumstances in the Middle East this weekend. It's just a gentle reminder that you need that exposure to the defense stocks. And I wanted to do it in a very universal way. So I went in and bought the ITA, which gives you exposure to all these names. All right. So, you know, often you, you all you know, describe things that are short term in nature as just for a trade, not a longer term and not, not a long term thing. Um, how do you envision this? No, I, I, view, I view this similar to I do, what I have said about the cybersecurity trade, Palo Alto, CrowdStrike. I think this is a longer-term trade. I think, Jenny, it's, it's realizing the value in a lot of these defense names, which have underperformed so far year-to-date. All right, so, Jenny, we'll, we'll go to you. I mean, size up the week here. So we have inflation data. We have earnings. We have geopolitical risk. We're watching oil yet again after it got crushed, you know, last week. All of these things now to consider, by the way, in a week in which we're going to mark a year anniversary from the bottom. Right. Last October. Right. So I ended Friday thinking, boy, this world is pretty murky. There is a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot that's unknown. I think that I think that over the past couple weeks, we've been kind of trying to find a new bottom. It seemed like we found that. Maybe things were getting a little more clear. And then the Israel and, and Hamas situation over the weekend, I think, just threw this really dark cloud on top of everything. And I've thought a lot about 
what the realistic implications for the market are. And while there might, it's it's hard to say what they really are in terms of oil prices or, um, I don't know, transport of goods. I think the biggest thing where it can challenge people, challenge the investment environment, is on consumer sentiment. Because you know what? However you cut it, it feels horrible. And when people feel horrible, they are not willing to pay the valuations that they were before. So where we have this peak valuation on the stock market of 20, 22 times, we've been hovering this in this 17 times, when people are feeling bad, that's going to get lower. We don't have earnings supporting it either. In fact, we see Goldman go out and say, all right, $237 earnings for 24. They reiterate, and they were, but they um, were already positive. It's not like they've taken down their, their expectations. They're not budging. No, but here's the thing. If you look at consensus for 24, consensus is still 240. Consensus for 25 is 275. So you see Goldman not budging on those lower numbers, and you've got to believe, okay, probably people are more likely to come in line with Goldman so you don't really have any great earnings growth ahead. You don't really have anything that's going to make valuations go up. I don't really see how the market goes up significantly or strongly from here for some time. And what's going on, it just it just muddies the waters and feels horrible. I mean, knee jerk especially. Um, obviously, the market had a, an, an immediate upset when the futures mm-hmm. had, had opened. And now you see this bit of a comeback that we're trying to make here. So Weiss, Evercore writing today that expectations are, are pretty low for earnings, even though you know this is the time where you get back to some earnings growth, it's still a, a low bar. I don't know where you know what greater sort of expectations are, but why don't you size up what's at stake this week? Yeah, I'm not so sure I agree with that. First of all, the expectations are muted because they're going to be up for the first time in about a year or so. So how's that muted? You're seeing the turn. And I don't think investors focus on just this reporting period. Right, but they haven't turned hard. Right, right? but they're so extrapolating. If we showed you the earnings growth, you know, true bar chart that we that we have, you'd see. I mean, it's you know a bare, barely a tick higher, ma- making the point that okay, anything back to earnings growth is good. Right, but the extrapolation is that we're done with the earnings recession, that earnings will continue to improve. And I'm saying I don't believe that's the case. I do believe we're going to a recession. Look, I think the market is wildly complacent. Now, you can come back and say, well, what about that sell-off we had? That was not a big sell-off. That was a minor sell-off that we saw over last month. The reason why I say it's complacent is take a look at what happened Friday. Powell's been very clear. He's targeting the jobs market. Job growth was double what expectations were. Yeah. So he's not having success there. So the well, market he is from a wage. Yeah. But from no, the wage, I, wages, I know we're looking but, at but wages. The wages are more important than the, the job number. But let me ask you this, okay? Don't you think wages will follow unless you see a massive increase? Why aren't they? You're talking about one number, Scott. The jobs numbers have been good. Numbers. Exactly. The jobs numbers. The wages have been continue good. to Scott, moderate. We've seen some come back on labor participation rate, so that has helped keep wage growth muted. That may not be the case. How's the Fed going to look at that? Okay, forget about one number. Numbers have been okay. This was a blowout number. This number should not have been a blowout number. And the other reason I say it's complacent is look at today. Now, I don't think we should have been down 3% today. It's good that it happened over the weekend and the market had time to breathe rather than knee-jerk reaction. But nonetheless, it's saying this is very isolated to Gaza and Israel. Right now. We don't know that's the case, right? We well, don't of know. Of course, what the, you never you never know what the but, worst possible case may be when a war breaks out, especially in that region where tensions are always on a little bit okay, of a, a and boil. tensions are always there. But sure, the, but so you we're never talking, know. We're talking about facts now. We're not talking about tensions. We're talking about occurrences. So we don't know. 
Okay, what happens as, as Israel masses in Gaza? What does that do to Hezbollah? Do they decide to come in through the southern border? We don't know. What's the U.S. response to the taking okay. of Okay, so what does that hostages? translate so to, to then? What are you doing? Are you raising cash? Are you selling stocks? I've got a lot You're of cash. buying I've bonds? Got a lot what of are you cash. doing? It goes back to my original point. There's complacency in the market. And complacency with this valuation level, with the consumer clearly atrophying, with consumer spending clearly declining again, not in every single data point, but enough to, to say there is a trend. I just think that there's no, that the risk reward going into the market now, as opposed to being in 5% treasuries or 6.5% triple Bs, I just think it's not a good risk to take. So, so there's a time to wait and there's time to invest. This is not time to invest. All right. So Josh Brown, you want to give us your your perspective? JP Morgan, bond yields likely to move lower. So you need you need yields to you know stop going up, you need earnings to be good. Um, you know, like we said, the geopolitical risks that are now introduced in the market, which by the way, you know, a, what was it, two, three weeks ago, Diamond, Jamie Diamond, was, was saying that he still thought that geopolitical risks were the biggest risk uh, w- within the market. And then we have seasonality about to take a bit of a turn. At least Ray J says we're essentially through the weakest time of the year. The S&P gaining from October 7th through year end, 81 percent of the time. So geopolitical risks are a constant. If you're an investor and you're taking risks in the market, this is what you have to live with, the uncertainty. And just at the moment of maximum certainty, for instance, think about how quiet the Middle East has been over the last couple of weeks. That's exactly the wrong time to think that those risks no longer exist. Uh, Obviously, the events of this weekend are horrific, and we're not going to get into the geopolitical or or the, the emotional side of it. Just from a financial perspective, there has really been a whole range of market reactions to these these types of events over the years. You go back to uh, 1973, of course, that was uh, a huge uh, event for U.S. stocks because it coincided with an oil embargo. That's unlikely to be repeated this time around. Go back to 2014, three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped, uh, ultimately killed. There was a seven-week war. Israel had to go into Gaza. They had to dismantle tunnels. They had to blow up buildings. It was terrible. Thousands of people died. The, the impact on the S&P 500 really didn't last for more than a month. And I think within, within that seven-week span of the, of the very acute violence, we had already gained back everything that was lost. And the reason why, and this is, of course, not to be callous at all, is that it's tough to shock investors with the same news over and over again for a prolonged period of time. Investors get acclimated and they, they refocus on profits and, and corporate profits and interest rates and markets tend to gravitate back uh, toward where things were before these things started. So uh, we're on the phones today talking to investors all over the country, people that think, is there something I need to do? Is there something I'm not doing that all of a sudden I have to? What's the right answer? And very often the right answer is to not react at all. I think for right now that's still the case. And I think you're seeing that reflected in the markets themselves. Uh, This is not the reaction that I would have expected in terms of magnitude. Uh, I was thinking on Saturday night, this will probably be a much worse Monday. Some people would say, well, the bond markets are closed, so you're only seeing half the equation. All right, maybe that's true. Um, But I I think all things being considered, Mm -hmm. the way that markets are reacting is fairly muted relative to what most people would have expected. Uh, And and I I don't want to say that's a silver lining. There is no silver lining. Um, But I think it's worth pointing out 
Weiss says there's complacency. Maybe that's a symptom of, of what he's talking about. But then I look at bank stocks. I don't really see any complacency there. Talk about, uh, talk, talk about uh, fear. The KBW is now nearing its lows for the year. At its lowest point, it was uh, 38.44. That's the bank index. It's right back there. It's about 1% from the lows from uh, after SVB. There are all kinds of name brand blue chip stocks that have already blown up this year. We talked about Target last week as an example of that. Uh, Disney's another example. We've got a lot of really big important stocks that are on their lows. They don't look like there is a, there's complacency everywhere. Maybe where there's the most complacency is in the Fang names, uh, even today. And that's probably true. I would agree with him on that. But there's a lot of damage and destruction all over this market. It's just being masked by a couple of mega cap names that have held up really well. Joe, you know, as I said, this week we're going to mark the, what we, what, you know, some suggest was the bottom. Um, others say we still might go back, you know, that this has still been a, just a prolonged bear market bounce for stocks, not the start of a new bull market. Uh, we still have major issues. Earnings are, are not going to come anywhere close to what, <clears throat> excuse me, the most optimistic projections suggest they could. Higher for longer, lag effects, all this stuff still hanging out there. Uh, how, do you, how do you factor all that in? I, I still think the biggest risk is if earnings disappoint tremendously. If earnings fall flat, if the Magnificent Seven don't deliver what the expectations might be, then I think the upcoming quarter is a quarter which will be volatile and it'll be a quarter which will be inconsistent with what history suggests. And you've read the statistics. I agree with the statistics. I do believe the fourth quarter has the potential to be a strong quarter, not as strong as the first quarter or the second quarter, uh, quarter rather. And I think the strength does come from the Magnificent Seven. What's interesting about all of this is we're going to learn very quickly how the Federal Reserve, with the knowledge of the horrific events in the Middle East, how they're thinking about the, the impact from that. You have a tremendous amount of Fed speak this week. Tomorrow, Bostic, Waller, Kashkari, Daly, they all have the opportunity to speak. And as the week progresses, you're going to hear from more and more in the Federal Reserve. And last week, we got a little bit of an indication that potentially maybe the Federal Reserve was beginning to pivot in their thought process. So if we get further indications that the Federal Reserve is pivoting, I think that's a nice setup for risk assets. And I wouldn't dismiss that possibility well, this week. It seems to be because the move in rates um, has sparked that you call it a pivot. I mean, what you're essentially referring to, people like Mary Daly, San Francisco yeah. Fed president last week, who said, well, the move in rates is really equivalent to a hike. Mm -hmm. um, and if, you know, financial conditions remain tight now, credit conditions remain tight, and then we're probably high enough. Lori Logan, Dallas Fed, higher yields may mean less need to raise rates. So it seems like, Jenny, the, the Fed speaker after Fed speaker is kind of falling in line here with, look, we don't want to, we don't want to, crush what we have here if we can actually pull this off and the bond market has done a lot of our work for us. I think that's right. And I think everyone I know on the investment side is kind of thinking the same thing. We're probably done hiking. It'll probably plateau at this level for longer. I think the market is doing the work for the Fed. Um, there's something interesting that Josh said before, which is about bond markets being closed today. And I was thinking about that a lot today, too, which is what we've seen in periods of huge geopolitical turmoil, right, is actually money floods into the U.S. So I wouldn't be surprised if when the bond markets open tomorrow, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually see a little bit lower yield. Get some buying? I think so. 
And so between, between you know, yes, they're higher and that's good, right? But if they start to quietly, in a, in a orderly way, drift down, that's good too. So I think the bond market is going to start to be something that's supportive and less jarring and less disruptive to equities. Yeah, bond, ahead, sorry, uh, bond futures are already suggesting that. Remember, bond futures are open today, and bond futures are futures. saying mm -hmm. tomorrow yep. morning we're going to see lower yields. All right, so uh, we will see. Now, a move that we didn't get to, you you did not, or you haven't been on since. I, I don't remember what the case is. You sold NVIDIA. I did. Uh, can you take us through the thought process there? Yeah. Why you did that? Um, it was not a big position, right, because I'm not going to have a big position at those levels. I've been in and out of it. And uh, given my cautious view in the market, uh, I just thought that the momentum trades are, are going to uh, suffer, and that being a momentum trade. I'm also struggling to see who the marginal buyer is for a trade. On a long-term basis, I don't really care who the marginal buyer is. The story will take care of buyers. But on a short-term basis, I was in there for a short-term basis, because I'm not going to talk about the quality of the company, clearly high quality, clearly innovator, clearly in a leader in AI chips. But I don't know what the double ordering is. I also believe, and we see it, not just believe, Microsoft coming out with their own chips. Apple, uh, Meta. So, so, so I don't know how it's going to shake out. But the point is, with every top fund wanting to show that they own NVIDIA, and this closes at quarter end, and lots of other funds as well, again, I just thought the risk-reward was unattractive as a trade at that point. But you don't believe in the flood of money coming into mega caps between now and the end of the year? Because Joe's kind of banking I do, on that. I do, but I ask myself, Well, how what? can you believe both? How can you believe that NVIDIA, well, who's, gonna, who's the buyer, but then I believe money's going to come into the mega caps? How does that square? It's very simple. Meta well, at 16 it. times next year, okay? Uh, Microsoft, which I believe will benefit far more from NVIDIA, which ultimately would be a commodity play with the AI chip, okay? benefiting much more. So how many do I have to own? I can't own all of them. I'm only the ones that I think have performed well, best. Well, Joe bought the Qs. For a long time. For Good example. for Joe. Good for Joe. No, but I'm saying that's how you <laughs> that's how you own all of them. Like you're sort of expecting that right. there's going to be a rush of money and a chase for performance between now and the end of the year right. into so, the mega caps. Right. So our not job, select mega caps, so which job, may be the case. Right. So our job as active managers is to pick the stocks that are going to outperform the indexes. Otherwise, you don't need an active manager. Right, so it's good to supplement your your ownership with cues. I'm big investor. Well, because active managers have really knocked the ball out over the fence for They've the last. They failed for right? a long, long time, for a long, long time. But I'm not them. So I own my biggest positions. UNH is my largest <laughs> position, followed followed by Meta, followed by Microsoft. I own Google. I own Amazon. I don't think I have to own Apple. I don't think I have to own Nvidia because everybody else in the world owns it. So I try to be valuation. Conscious. You should own Apple. It's up every day since it got downgraded last week. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to hire you as my deputy portfolio manager. You'll so have you have one so much spare time. Apple. Right, it'd be, one, it'd be Apple. <laughs> so I can't add anything to Apple. Nobody can. Nobody can analyze Apple. They don't, management doesn't talk to you. So, not that Nobody Microsoft does. Nobody can analyze does. Apple? I mean, it's not like some black hole where you can't. Apple, Apple exists, okay, at the pleasure of the telcos because they subsidize the buying of it. If the telcos, and they've talked about it, I don't see it near term, ever go away, then instead of those phones being free to a consumer, they're 1,500 bucks. You've seen the cycles for replace them extend. All right, well, you've owned Apple many, many times throughout the years where those same issues would have been in your mind 
but you've owned it before. Scott, Scott, let me repeat. I'm not an index manager. I'm not going to own indexes. Okay? I didn't say you had to own indexes. Okay. Well, we're that's talking what about you're Apple. Yeah, I said you're we're saying, talking about Apple. You basically said, why don't you own Apple? You're why saying you don't, don't, no, I didn't say, I'm why don't you own Apple? I said, I you're saying I don't own Apple because it remains at the... the the mercy of the telcos. It's well, overvalued. it's remained at the mercy of the telcos. It, it's that's always existed then. It's overvalued. Well, they see, we finally got to the point. No, you we think said it's that overvalued. Point. I've made that point multiple times. I'm sorry you don't recall, but I'll jog your memory. It's overvalued. You owned <laughs> Apple when the valuation was half of what it is now. Yeah. Now it's overvalued, but then it wasn't. Come on, Weiss. Let me, My let me just repeat that. You owned Apple when the valuation was half of what it is now. Correct. Now I don't own it because it's double that. Correct. It's overvalued. Yeah, but you used it's to say no the growth. same thing about, you used to say. Oh. What's the growth? Tell me, what's the growth in revenues and in earnings been over the last I years? give you credit. Usually when you hate on Apple, you do it as I'm a shareholder. I've got you nothing. do it as a shareholder. Now you don't own it. I've got, I've got nothing against anybody wanting to own Apple. It's not what I choose to own. I think there's better long-term performance in not a consumer product company, but in a technology company like Meta, like Google, like um, like Microsoft, that's where I think I'll outperform Apple over the long term. So you don't think Microsoft is too expensive at 30 times or whatever it I is? I do, I do, but I've owned it for a while. I'm not selling it. And if I sell it, I'm basically taking the value. I'm saying, okay, I'm going to be down 50% because I think it's going to decline 50% because I've got to pay taxes. So I'm prepared to own it. Microsoft's going to unleash a whole new slate of products in January and through the year. They'll take advantage of AI. You're going to have to buy their products. You're going to have to renew their subscription, and those subscription prices will go higher. So Microsoft is the number one beneficiary of AI. Let me repeat that. Number one, not NVIDIA, with an enduring subscription model. That's why I own Microsoft, and that's why I prefer it to be cheaper. As a matter of fact, I, I was talking to Carrie Firestone over the weekend, and she said, what are you going to do next week? She said, I'm hoping the market gets crushed so that I can buy more Microsoft and Meta. As big positions as they are, I would add to it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Are we supposed to take a You want to take a break? Can we take a break? All right, we'll take a quick break. All right, Nelson Peltz coming up. Taking aim at Disney again. The activist investor increasing his stake in the company is another proxy fight looming there. We'll find out how the committee is navigating that trade, and we'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back, uh, and so is Nelson Phelps. Uh, he's up to stake in Disney. Take a look at the stock. We made it our chart of the day. 
Uh, stock is up one and a half percent, as you see. Uh, said to now have, Jenny, uh, 30 million shares worth two and a half billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, might seek multiple board seats, uh, including one for himself. Uh, probably looks at the shares being down 17% in the past six months. Uh, more dramatic over a longer period of time, of course. So as a shareholder, what do you think about this? It makes me wonder if he's looking at it the same way we are, which is there are a couple of reports, industry reports out recently too. And one of them was Barclays and Barclays said they're still looking for a bottom. But when we look at it, we think Disney's found its bottom and here's why. Market cap is $150 billion, right? The parks earn $10 billion, generate $10 billion of operating income. So, so the entire share price is trading at 15 times just the parks. That's not counting streaming. That's not counting ESPN. There is value to those, however you cut it. And it's interesting, too, because you, you say down 17% in a year. That's absolutely true. No, six true. months. Six months, sorry. Um, but if you look at the consumer stocks, so you look at Nike, McDonald's, um, Home Depot, Starbucks, those are all down between... 18 and 8% on the year. Uh, Disney's down 4%. So I actually think maybe it has found a bottom. Maybe you, it really. Are you re you're really comparing it to those companies in terms of thinking where the stock is going to go? This no, is like a singular. No, 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 no. All I'm saying is if you look at consumer, the fact that it's not down as much as those, which have operated a lot better year to date, just says to me, oh, I actually would have. <laughs> given everything in retrospect, I would have thought it would be down more. So only down 4% and thinking about $150 market cap on $10 billion of income just from the parks makes me think it probably is at a bottom. So if Nelson's stepping in and he's saying, okay, let's figure out where the real value is. Let's figure out where we like what the real price of ESPN is. Let's figure out when and where there is value in streaming again. That just adds to that 10 billion, right? And makes the makes the multiple a lot less. So that's my guess is he's saying this thing is completely bottomed. Let's let's start to build off of this. I mean, when you see this news as a shareholder, are you like, okay, well, let's, you know, you know this what is I did? good. Yeah. You know, good. Good so, to have him back. So that's my knee-jerk reaction. And so what I did this morning was I looked up his record when he when he's taken activist positions in other stocks. And it hasn't really juiced. Everything he's taken in activi activist position in the past five or ten years hasn't really been juiced to the degree, degree that I hoped it would. So I'm on the train coming in, looking this up, hoping that I'm going to come and say to you, yeah, and when he entered this and that, like they all skyrocketed 200%, but that wasn't the case. So I look at it, I look at his involvement with optimism, but not wild enthusiasm. It's a big ship to turn. I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he's making a mark. And I mean, he's a super brilliant investor. So I like that he's in the same lane that I am. But I don't know that he's going to be able to drive a 200% or 100% return in short order. I'm not taking a position here, but I'll say this. Until Disney restores the dividend, until Disney is able to potentially maybe sell ABC or find the strategic partner for ESPN, what we've been reminded of today is that there is a pelts put in Disney. And the That's pelts right. put so? is absolutely going to be there when you see the stock price fall to the level that it has fallen in the third quarter. So I don't know that he ever went away. I think he was satisfied in terms of where the price was last February, and certainly he announced that. But until the business itself is able to, however you want to uh, describe it, transform itself, however the business is able to get to the place that Nelson Pelson and others want to see Disney be, when you see the stock fall, you need to know that the Pelts put is there. Weiss, what did you say? What is the Pelts put? I don't understand. Pelts put is increasing his stake from a billion dollars to two and a half billion dollars. But how much do you 
How much capital do you think he has? Call him and ask him. Got two and a half. Well, that, well, I thought you knew because you said there's a pelt's put as if no, you're the, right. you're the one asking that question. You, you I, I'm asking. How, how, I'm how should I know how much capital you're, Nelson? I don't I'm not. Okay. I'm not criticizing. You said there's a pelt's put. Okay, here's which the mean, thing. Jenny, excuse me. But a pelt's, but, a pelt's put, Stephen, means that he's active in the market at a certain valuation. Okay, That's all but, I'm saying. but you can see how much capital he has. Number one, it's not unlimited capital. He's still a portfolio manager running a fund. You still got to have some, you know, have some risk management skills. I don't think you can count on Pelts continuing to buy with deep pockets a la a Warren Buffett support the stock, number one. Number two, uh, I don't know how much value you assign to streaming. It's losing money with no road to profitability in sight. Look at how long it took Netflix to get there. It's I think actually, that the risk of right, but Jenny, let me finish. But Jenny, Jenny points out, but Jenny points out <laughs> the, the, the value person looks at Disney and says to the point Jenny made that it's only being valued on the theme parks. Right. And that the success of the theme parks, that it has much more to offer than just the theme parks, that they can figure out right. how to turn and I the, figure. the boat. So, so my position in Disney is I'd like to buy it. Right. It's a classic company. It's not overly expensive compared to historical norms at 20 times. But I'm not so sure the downside is done until they flesh it out. And I'm not so sure that they don't need new management. So while Nelson Peltz's track record has been okay as an activist, it's great to have a fresh set of eyes here than somebody who's so vested in there. Let's not forget that that, that Iger came in and just criticized Chappick. Guess who put Chappick in there? Guess who groomed him? Guess who went into streaming? Guess who cut the deal with we Fox? We know, Bob Iger. So, so no. he's a quality CEO, but I just, I'm glad you have fresh eyes in there. Hopefully something happens. And that's what I thought Joe meant. The fresh eyes is what I thought Joe meant by the put. I didn't the, think the put can that. come. The put can be financial. Right. The put can come from the perspective of fresh ideas. That's what the put is. Josh. He's active. Josh. That's what I thought. Josh. Go ahead. Okay. I'm Team Weiss <laughs> on this one. Uh, I, I don't think we've had the washout yet. I, I do think there's a little bit of amnesia here. Nelson Peltz already fought a proxy battle with Disney, and the end result is the stock dropped 25%. It lost a quarter of its market cap after Peltz backed down. Why did he back down? Because Iger laid out a plan to reduce costs by $5.5 billion. Mission accomplished. They've, they've done that. They've shaved $5.5 billion off in annual costs. Guess what? Didn't matter. Because to Steve's point and, and to Joe's point, um, there still has to be a transformation here. That's the thing hanging over the stock. Nelson Peltz doesn't even have a crack at getting nominees on the board until January. It's October. So nothing is happening here from a proxy standpoint. You know what? But maybe, uh, and, maybe, and, maybe to your point, the most important, well, if you said it, the most important thing that has to happen is a succession plan, a, a credible one, I guess. This time, no. They maybe, have to maybe, solve ESPN. It's a melting. I know. I know it, they're it's a melting that, iceberg. But still, but still, when they need to figure out who's going to take over for Iger, they need to figure out who's going to take Sorry. over for Iger, right? We so, know who's going to take over for Iger. They're already there. Do? He brought them back. Iger bought their consulting firm. Yes, that's that's resolved. Oh, okay. Uh, the new, the, you broke the, the, news the real now. issue. News is broken. Uh, this is why. This is widely known. Uh, okay. uh, all of the podcasts on Puck have been talking about this for two months. He bought okay. out the consulting firm to bring the, the two heirs apparent back into the fold. But that's not the, the thing. The Josh thing is, is they had a cash cow. Sorry, guys. They had a cash cow. It was reaching 100 million homes. They were getting paid whether or not people watched it. It was one of the most profitable businesses in the history of media. 
And that business no longer has 100 million households. It's like more like in the 70s, headed toward the 50s. And the rates that they were getting on the ads is not coming back either. It's a huge problem. It's what's overhanging the stock. The parks business is not the issue. Uh, and, and I think if Iger could solve that, the succession can wait. I don't know what Pelts can do here. He's got 30 million shares now. Granted, he's coming bigger than he did last time. We know that Iger is willing to listen because he listened the first time. But is Nelson Peltz, who's had a ton of success in consumer packaged goods, in food companies, soft drinks, fast food, is that the right person to help Iger figure out how to dispose of this asset before it loses even more value this year, next year? That's the problem with Disney. I don't think I have the solution, but I agree with Weiss. It, it, we still haven't really seen the washout. Uh, where we could be wrong is if he pulls off an amazing transaction for ABC, the linear TV networks, and ESPN inside of the next six months. It's just hard to imagine what it's going to be. Who well, is the buyer and off, why? What if he spins off the streaming business with embedded contracts with their production and make it a good, bad, good bank, bad bank type situation? So you just need to. I suppose it's I suppose it's possible. Yeah. So so I agree with you. Pelt is not the guy. He's not a media guy, but he wants to put multiple nominees on there. Let's see who those nominees are. Sure, but I mean, so. just because he uh, is, you know, he's a, as you said, a, a package goods genius, and he's had an amazing career based on, on that, and he does he has less experience. He has less. He has less experience in in media. Doesn't mean that he couldn't offer. I mean, isn't it possible True. he actually could offer like reasonable of, things in the, in the boardroom? He's a smart businessman. Of course, of course he could. Okay, but that's not necessarily enough. And it doesn't necessarily mean Iger and the board's going to listen to him as an outsider. So it remains to be seen. They still, let's not forget, balance sheet's not tremendous, still have a lot of debt. Now, throw off cash flow, not an issue, but they still have a lot of debt. And you just increase their CapEx markedly with their plan to spend more on theme parks, which is good because it's a growth engine, so invest in your future. The story has yet to be told. Risk reward right here is unattractive to me. All right, let's get the headlines now with Silvana Hanel. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Scott. All right, here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Israel has ordered a, quote, complete siege of the Gaza Strip and has called up to 300,000 reservists to counter the Hamas-led invasion and attacks that began Saturday. It's the largest ever call-up of reserves in Israel. Israel's defense forces said that between Saturday morning and between Saturday and Monday morning, over 1,200 targets were hit by Israeli aircraft. And that today, that number doubled. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says the only hospital in the northeastern part of the Gaza Strip is out of service after the Israeli counterattacks in the area. The ministry says emergency crews can no longer get in and out of the area because of extensive damage. And Israelis lined up across the country today at supermarkets concerned about supply shortages in the midst of the fighting. Meanwhile, the UN World Food Program is calling for the creation of humanitarian corridors to bring food to civilians in Gaza. Halftime Report returns after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back on the half. Let's get to Bob Pisani now with today's ETF edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scott. Is interest in crypto fading? Last week, nine Ethereum futures ETFs were launched, but their debut has been underwhelming. Low volume, low assets under management. Let's talk with Rick Edelman, founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, former head of Edelman Financial Engines. Rick, before we get to crypto, you, you were for many years Barron's number one independent financial advisor in the country, ran Edelman Financial. What do you tell investors who might be rattled by these terrible events in Israel? Well, first of all, our hearts and prayers go out to everybody in Israel. This is just a horrific situation. Uh, and everybody has a typical, I think, knee-jerk reaction, you know, the world's coming to an end. Um, that was Wall Street's initial reaction at the opening. And then a little bit while later, everybody realizes, oh, the world isn't coming to an end, at least not at the moment. And that's the, the attitude we need to remind ourselves, Bob, is that Shocks to the system occur from time to time, as horrible as they are from a humanity perspective. But it, it shouldn't alter your investment strategy. If you have enough cash reserves and you have a long-term time horizon, an event like this shouldn't cause you to sell in a panic. That never helps anybody's wealth. Good advice. I want to turn to crypto. Last week, we had these nine Ethereum futures ETFs launched, but the public doesn't seem interested. Now, look at these numbers. Nine million in the biggest one. This is nothing compared to the Bitcoin ETFs. We had big welcome when they started in 2021. Is interest in crypto waning? No, I think people are getting smarter about crypto. Back in 2021, when Bitto launched the first Bitcoin futures ETF, there was a huge amount of excitement, partly because Bitcoin was at a far higher level. It was growing rapidly. Also because this was the first of its kind, and investors didn't realize the difference between Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures. After they own the fund and they start to see what's happening, they begin to realize what the real story is. By the time the Ethereum futures come out, we've been around the block. Yeah. And just like most advisors aren't recommending futures in stocks, they're not recommending futures in crypto either. Yeah, so Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, has been a vociferous opponent of spot Bitcoin ETFs. Right. He's got less than a week to appeal this grayscale ruling. You know, the, the court ruled he had approved Bitcoin futures. He had to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. He's got to appeal that or not this week. What's he going to do? Is there any sign his opposition to crypto is finally crumbling? Are we going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF or what? Uh, we definitely will. The only question is, when. Some are optimistic it'll happen this month or next. Others believe early Q1 of next year. Um, some say not until Gensler's out of office. Uh, he still doesn't like crypto. Uh, and he's the only one who seems to fail to understand that the addition of a Bitcoin ETF improves consumer safety. Yeah. And everyone gets it except him. That is the key argument. Okay, Rick's going to have a lot more on the future of crypto coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. He'll be joined by Holly Framstead. She's the Capital Group Director of ETFs. She runs one of the largest suites of active ETFs. Active ETFs have attracted outsized share of inflows this year. Holly's going to explain why. ETF Edge. That's CNBC.com. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff, Bob. Appreciate that very much. Bob Pisani. Coming up, your dividend playbook. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson 
He's making the bull case for dividend growth stocks today. We'll debate the names he likes and, of course, the names that Jenny likes. We'll do it next. Welcome back. Uh, great to have you here today, Jenny, because we got a list today from Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, right? Been negative on the market, um, but he's talking about dividend winners, not just stocks um, that pay a dividend, but that are consistent growers of. Right. OK, we have a, there's a number of names on the list. I hope we'll put them up as we're talking here because you own three of the ones that are on his list. Verizon. Energy transfer and EPD. Right. Um, if hopefully have the list. Um, at any rate, w what about this idea? So he pointed out two really important things in the report. And one, he looks at the Russell 1000 and goes back to the year 2000. And actually, over that period, dividend-paying stocks had an increase of 1,200%, where he shows non-dividend-paying stocks have an increase of 500%. I think that surprises people. Um, and he's looking at everything, like Apple, Microsoft. They pay dividends, too. So do the sleepier companies with the higher dividend yields that I own. But it's a really dramatic difference. And I think one thing that that people get stuck on as dividend investors is that they think when they're buying dividend companies, they're buying sleepy, slow, steady, you know, tried and true. They're not going to have a lot of volatility. The reality is, is they're still stocks and they trade up and down with the market, shaking people out and sometimes kind of really disappointing people. But if they sit back and kind of ride out that, that 20, 30 year period that Mike Wilson's pointing to, they're going to get a really nice return. Another thing that he points out that's really important is in an inflationary environment where you start with above trend inflation and inflation is moving lower, high dividend yielders that are also defensive tend to outperform the broader markets by 8.2%. Now, that may be that we've had a terrible year this year. They've been beat up, and now there's upside ahead. But I think that he's really spot on in this assessment that now's the right time. So you have your five top plays. Right. You know, Verizon and, and his pick, they overlap, obviously. Yep. But you do have others, One Oak, Triple uh, N REIT, Organon, uh, Whirlpool. Right. So trip, uh, One Oak is a midstream company, just like Enterprise and, and uh and energy transfer. So I really, I like those. But all of these companies have also, to his point, increased dividends over the years. So One Oaks increased the dividend for 11 years. Triple N, which used to be used to be national retail properties, and they just own big box stores like 7-Elevens and Wawa's. They have 99.5% occupancy, super long-term leases. Whatever's going on in this crazy world really doesn't impact them. They've increased that dividend for 34 years. Verizon's increased it for 17. Organon actually spun off of Merck recently, so they, they're just paying that. They haven't started increasing it yet, but they think they'll increase it in the 5% range going forward. And then you have Whirlpool that's increased the dividend for 13 years. So I think he's really right about that because it shows, it proves, it doesn't just show, it proves the financial health of these companies. You want to give me quickly, Joe, a couple of names that you like? Absolutely. Dividend growth is key. If you could find a large cap company that's growing at 10% average over the last five years, it's a company I want to own. AbbVie is one of those companies. Dividend growth over the last five years of 12% and two 20 plus dividend growth S&P companies over the last five years, Cintas and Tractor Supply. All right, we'll take a quick break, and then Mike Santoli joins us on the other side with his midday word.
Mike Santoli here, our senior markets commentator with his uh, midday word. Uh, do you put less stock, part of the pun, into what's happening in the market because the bond market's closed? Or how do you look at today? Not really, uh, because I think we're getting the benefit of a stealth bid in the bond market. If you look at where Treasury futures are trading and you look at the, the Treasury ETFs, mm-hmm. they're showing that prices up, yields down a little bit. Um, probably uh, got reinforced by those comments by Lori Logan today, which told you why good news on the economy can be good news for now, because Fed officials are starting to be alert to the move on the long end of the yield curve and taking that into their process and saying the thing we've been most scared about, which is a runaway gain in yields, also has their attention. Maybe they won't have to do so much. So I think we're finding some kind of equilibrium with that for the moment. Okay. Um, one year since the bottom. Yeah. This week, right? We're uh, a couple days away from that. Yes. Thursday was the, the closing low. And, you know, uh, we're up 20 plus percent on the S&P, but uh, it's, it's been very narrow. It's been an underachieving first year of a bull market, if that's what that is. But, you know, earnings estimates just did return to their all-time high, which was from the middle of last year. So if you think about that, earnings estimates back to the all-time high. We're still several percent from the index highs. It shows you that we've maybe built in a little bit of a buffer. You point to the big events, obviously, this week. Uh, it's a CPI and then yeah. earnings. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're at some degree, you know, do, do you think, by the way, that one of the notes that we kicked around earlier in the show that, you know, the, the bar is really, really low? For earnings still? It seems like it, just based on the price action. I mean, what the average stock has done over the last uh, few uh, few weeks, at least, uh, would suggest that the bar is lower. There's been a fair bit of guidance and pre-announcement. Uh, that being said, you know, beat rates have not really been a formula for big rallies in the last couple of quarters. So we'll see how that translates. All right. I'll see you on Closing Bell. Yeah. A couple hours time. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Final trades are next. A bit of a volatile day thus far. I hope you'll join me closing bell 3 o'clock. We'll track this last hour of trade with Adam Parker, Emily Rowland. Doug Clinton's going to join us from Deepwater Asset Management. Runs a tech-focused fund. Um, We'll see. I mean, NASDAQ is, you know, the weakest of the three today. And there's a lot of focus on those stocks within that as we approach earnings season on Friday. And those stocks are still obviously a few weeks away from that. Josh, final trade. Uh, CrowdStrike, new 52-week high today. Very rare. Weiss. I'm going with Humana. I bought it last week. Profit Healthcare, my trade area right now, my focus. Mm-hmm. These stocks are killing it. UNH is my biggest position. Okay, thank you. Jenny Harrington. Okay, a juicy dividend one. Flex LNG. They have a 10.5% dividend yield, trading at 11 times with the disruption in the Middle East where, where supply routes are going to messed up, be messed up and day rates go up. Probably will benefit. Sad okay. but true. All right. Uh, the Joe T. Staying long EQT as natural gas prices are now up 18% for the quarter. All right. Uh, right now, Dow is down about 40. I see the S&P is still red. We said NASDAQ's the trailer today. NVIDIA's pulling back by about 2%. A lot of other things, though, in the green. I'll see at 3, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.